Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we use data to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us, this time also with me in Berlin. So hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. We're not in the same room. Adam has a very busy schedule, so it feels much the same, even though we're in the same town. But first... The data point here is 4%. That is the share of Americans who say that they regularly think about the Iraq war, the war that the United States waged in Iraq 20 years ago. So those 20 years ago when the war was starting, it was seemingly all that anyone in the world could think about. The eyes are 77, the nays are 23, the joint resolution is passed. 2003 global protests against the looming U.S. invasion of Iraq, the largest in history. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Of course, hundreds of thousands of people died in Iraq, and the political consequences seemed pretty dramatic at the time with Barack Obama and Donald Trump both earning prominence eventually as critics of the war. But we thought we'd see if there's an economic lens that can provide some enlightenment on this 20-year anniversary. So, Adam, when all is said and done, what exactly did the Iraq war cost, and how should we go about even calculating that cost in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a grim toll to add up. I mean, the Brown University has a unit which did you know, persistent, dogged, heroic work in, in adding up the numbers of the global war on terror. You alluded to the hundreds of thousands killed. I mean, the best estimate, I think, of Iraqis killed by U.S., the action of the U.S. military and its allies, of course, notably Britain, um, is you know somewhere between 280 and 311,000 Iraqis were killed. Several times as many died as a result of the destruction of the Iraqi state. And then if you add in the disruption in Syria that followed and that was directly connected to it through the sort of, um, you know, the ISIS insurgency, the, co- the cost becomes even more ex- exorbitant. Millions of people were displaced. About three million Iraqis were refugees in their own country at the, at the worst moments of chaos. On top of that, the U.S. military suffered 4,600 dead, um, another 3,700 casualties amongst lethal casualties amongst U.S. contractors, 32,000 wounded, 1,500 suffered amputations. And this is just on the American side. I mean, it's, in in my view, one of the great international crimes of the 21st century. And the fact that Bush and Blair never had to answer for their decision-making before The Hague is, you know, one of the great omissions, failures of international justice. And and I think the, the undermining of political legitimacy that followed from this, the fact that there really was no accountability for this disaster did you know has to be numbered amongst the costs 
if we go to the bit which we can account for most directly, it's the, you know, the, if you look at US military spending, the direct cost is something estimated in the order of $1.79 trillion. And if you add in the the US veteran medical and disability care numbers, the figures go to $2.89 trillion. So it's an absolutely gigantic expenditure of money. Some element of that is the extra interest burden on the debt that was accumulated at the time, but the vast majority of it is expenditure. They don't, And those numbers don't include the spending by US allies, which would add, I don't know, another 170 plus billion on top of that. So we're talking about a huge allocation of public funds to a war that was in geopolitical terms, in human terms, in political terms, ruinous. It's really one of the great miscarriages of government in the modern era. Trillions of dollars. First of all, we don't we don't hear about trillions so much, I feel like, in, in our public policy. That's something like we've talked about, Adam, as potentially a future essay you write for foreign policy, just that the scale is something that we're usually talking about billions of dollars. But yeah, when you add it all up, often uh, we're left with these sums of the trillions. You know, perhaps the most devastating remark is simply that this was the one thing that the increasingly polarized and divided American political system could agree on doing. With very few notable exceptions, Barack Obama being one as a young senator, the American political system rallied of all projects, not around healthcare, not around you know a green energy transition, not around just basic infrastructure in the United States, but around this as the as the as the common project. And I think that's ultimately the most mm-hmm. devastating conclusion that one reaches when looking at these numbers. To get more into the details, what exactly is the legacy of? the war in terms of military spending. Was there a peace dividend after the war was over? Or have we kept the kind of elevated military spending that we had during the war, but just sort of dropped any expectation that the military will be used for democracy promotion, as the term was during the Iraq war? Well, you know, the budgetary accounting for the Pentagon is very complicated and quite opaque. But there is, there is a basic division between war fighting expenditure, which peaked in 2008, that was on both Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, when both, as it were, the, the Iraq surge was coming off its peak and the early Obama-Afghanistan surge was building up in 2008-2009. So the war fighting element sort of peaks at $200 billion and, and has fallen to a, a residual amount today. So there, in, in, in the dedicated funds for overseas operations, you do see, as it were, the conjuncture of the war played out. But the longer-term effects are seen in the what's called the DOD base budget, which also follows this pattern, but over a longer period and never comes down. So the, the base budget, which is which is driven by, you know, the, the number of personnel, the level of pay, which was raised in the early 2000s in, in the early stages of the global war of terror, so as to enable recruitment and then to hold the personnel, the expenditure on housing, expenditure on military health, all of that, as it were, feeds slowly through the system. The base budget peaked at about seven hundred billion early on in the Obama administration, then fell in the later stages of the Obama administration by a hundred billion dollars, and then surged from from the first year of the Trump administration and has now reached you know new historic highs, um, well well over eight hundred billion dollars a year. And what we have also seen is that Congress increasingly outdoes itself in actually voting more funds for the Pentagon than the administration actually asks for. So fairly routinely since 
the outbreak of the war, there has been this snowballing effect where the military budget creaks upwards rather than downwards um, to respond to that sense of popular, you know, rallying around around the flag. So by comparison with the 1990s period where the Clinton administration really did take the peace dividend on a substantial scale, really we haven't seen anything like that in in this case. We've also seen, of course, a major shifting of gears from the kind of war that the American military was fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, which was a you know counterinsurgency war which required boots on the ground. What we're now seeing, of course, is a shifting of gear towards more high-tech programs, which are more suitable for confronting um, China, which is seen as the as the you know the pace-setting threat, as the Pentagon likes to call it. So, all of those things are running through those numbers. But on the whole, the DoD budget has moved on a slightly different cycle from the war-fighting budget, and the DoD one oscillates around a two high levels and they're the 700 billion dollar level down to 600 and now back up from there and really the sky's the limit at this point i think okay we're going to take a break and come back talk about the iraqi economy itself hi this show is sponsored by better help So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sammy Khoury, 
head of the Canadian government's Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back. To turn to the Iraqi economy itself. It turns out the Iraqi economy was struggling long before the war. If you get into the numbers, it was not doing well before the invasion. But did the war do anything to change its trajectory or even improve it? Or is there any data on how the war has affected the overall Iraqi economy? And are there any lessons to be drawn about development policy from this overall experience? Yeah, I kept coming away from, you know, doing the research for this question, I felt I felt we should maybe come back to this as a separate segment to really address the state of, you know, Iraq as one of the weaker members of the OPEC system, as a neighbor of Syria, as a rival with Iran. Mm. Um, we've spoken about Iran and Syria at various points, but I think it would be really an interesting and important story to go back to because it's it's a disaster. I mean, it's a really tragic story because in the 1980s, Iraq um, had one of the most, by most, I mean, by you know, official American government accounts, Iraq in the 80s was, after all, an American ally to a considerable extent in the in the you know in the the struggle against the revolutionary Iran. Um, but American accounts at the time credit Iraq as one of the most advanced Arab economies. I mean, it had a considerable industrial sector, relatively well-developed transport system, comparatively good infrastructure, quite modern healthcare system. It had a relatively large middle class, uh, per, ca- per capita incomes that were comparable to Venezuela or Trinidad or Korea, and one of the best educational systems in the Arab world. So, you know, Iraq was a success story, broadly speaking, um, in the eyes, certainly, of Western commentators. It was a command-orientated economy um, under the Ba'athist regime and one that was shaped by the imperatives of the Gulf War, but it was but not doing badly by any standards, heavily dependent, of course, on the state of the oil price, which from the late 80s onwards begins to crash. But the real disaster for the Iraqi economy begins not 20 but 30 years ago with the you know, with Saddam's invasion of Kuwait and the sanctions that followed that. And really, Iraq's economy has been struggling, struggling ever since. There was recovery from the low level to which Iraq crashed in the early 1990s. After 1995, there's the UN Oil for Food program, which enables um, a sort of trickle of Iraqi oil to reach uh, global markets. But then the invasion in 2003 knocks the Iraqi economy back by another 40 to 50 cent, dependent on the numbers that you look at. And there has been a recovery from that extraordinarily low level that Iraq reached, but it's been patchy. It depends very heavily on both reconstruction spending by the Americans, the vast majority of which went on the Iraqi security forces, which was in part necessary because, of course, by 2006, seven Iraq was in the middle of a more or less, uh, un- you know, an, an unacknowledged but nevertheless extremely violent civil war. Um, Iraq itself has devoted its considerable oil revenue to reconstruction very inefficiently with huge levels of corruption and massive dysfunction as a result of the divisions within the country. And then you have the ISIS shock and the collapse of global oil prices in 2014, which knocked the Iraqi economy back again, 20% for the whole of the Iraqi economy, 35% for the non-oil chunk of the Iraqi economy. So the Iraq 
Iraq's GDP per capita today is broadly speaking at the same level as it was in 2003, whilst the rest of the world, of course, has dramatically moved on, notably the countries that it was a rival with and a competitor of. So whilst Iraq was once upon a time a bona fide member of the relatively high middle income club, it's now trailing along at the bottom of that league, at the very bottom of that league, and the non-oil sector in Iraq is at lower middle income, like $2,500 per capita kind of level. It's now essentially a, a country with an underdevelopment problem, with a huge poverty problem, millions of people dependent on food aid, a 25% underemployment rate, 40% amongst young people who make up a very large share of the Iraqi population. It's 87% dependent on oil revenue for its government account. So basically, its ability to function as a political system, which is heavily dependent in the post-Baathist period on basically dishing out oil revenues between various factions within Iraq, because the state structure itself was essentially demolished by the Americans in 2003. That is part of the legacy of this war too. From an economic point of view, it's it's just been um, catastrophic. And were there any plans, as far as we know, in the US or Britain or anyone else involved in this war about how to improve the Iraqi economy? Or it seemed to me, if my recollection, the assumption was just that the economy would take care of itself once Saddam Hussein was gone and that the oil would flow and everything would get better. But there was no one really taking these economic questions then. Seriously, it seems like at the time. or um, Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things we should get yeah. into if yeah. we do this as a special episode. But I think, you know, a key element, this was true in Afghanistan as well, was that, you know, Iraq was a much, much, much more sophisticated economy than Afghanistan, but it mm. was an economy essentially centered on state structures. And so Bremer's move early on to debathify the state structures, which essentially meant firing everyone from the public services slashed away the structures of the Iraqi state that actually held the economy together. It was a, it was mm. an economy based on state-owned enterprises, and if you demolish the Ba'athist state, you're not left with very much. And the idea then was, I think, that private contractors from the West would, you know, would would enter this market and it would become a, you know, a paragon of of public-private partnerships. But of course, you know, those are those are a dodgy proposition. They're a complicated bargain at the best of times. That when you have a state as weak as the Iraqi state was, it's a recipe for total disaster and broadly speaking, dysfunction. I mean, I remember talking to veterans of the US military, you know, it, at the time, in the 2000s, people who had been with the American forces as it entered, you know, bombed out Europe after 1945. And, and they were saying how humiliating it was that whereas in Europe, within a matter of days, if not weeks, of American forces taking occupation, for instance, of a German city, they would restore water supply and power because they understood that to be absolutely essential for the maintenance of public order and therefore legitimacy. In Iraq, essentially this was failing. The, the the infrastructure remained totally fragile and unreliable for years after the after the occupation and the, the you know the the overthrow of Saddam's regime. So Iraq regressed from being a society which in the eighties was an example of um, oil fuel development. Not at the same level as Iran, because the gap between Iraq and Iran is of course huge historically. But nevertheless, an example of relatively rapid progress in the Arab world. And then, you know, to find itself essentially in a situation of chronic emergency after 2003 was, was a huge shock. Yeah, the more one gets into the details, the more infuriating somehow it, it becomes. But uh, I guess I wanted to ask a, a final question here, a pretty broad one, I realize, which is, was the Iraq war a significant war? 
as I said at the top, only 4% of Americans say they even think about it regularly anymore. And of course, it felt so significant at the time. But was this a war without sort of the stakes of real history in a way for the United States? You know, obviously, it was a, a voluntary war. So was it a kind of expression of decadence from the United States? Because it was outside the context of the great power conflicts that you alluded to that we're now facing. I mean, I think that's probably a fair assessment. I mean, I'd, you know, I, I would, I mean, I would say to some extent the same about Britain, which was, after all, the major ally of the United States in this in this hugely misguided enterprise, and served as a very important fig leaf, I think, you know, in the in the coalition backing the war. It's striking, I think, that it plays a relatively small role in public consciousness compared, for instance, to Vietnam. The American losses in Vietnam were very much more considerable and the public relations management was more naive, in a sense, in Vietnam. The American military allowed US journalists to you know, put these horrendous images of the fighting on the US primetime TV, which was famously not what happened during the Iraq war. I think into the 2010s, it was still very present. But broadly speaking, it's hard to disagree with you that, that this was an instance of a war of choice, which from America's point of view was a relatively in the end, um, small part of America's overall strategic vision. But I think one has to insist that from the point of view of the region, you know, if we're trying to assess the significance of the war, it's hugely significant. I mean, the modern Middle East is essentially the product of three historical moments, right? It's or maybe four historical moments, right? The, the first is the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of Iraq um, out of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire under the frankly cynical auspices of the British Empire, the you know, Sykes-Picot Agreement, which carves up uh, the the Ottoman Empire in, in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq. The next moment is, of course, the creation of Israel, and the third would be the Iranian Revolution, and the and the the fourth would be this 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 extraordinarily violent destruction by by the U.S. and its allies of of Iraq, which was, after all, a key element of this of this very fragile and very dangerous picture. So the consequences have been huge. The consequences are, are spectacular for, on the one to the West, for Syria, um, because the the ISIS moment in the Syrian civil war is unthinkable, I think, without the chaos that prevailed in Iraq at the time, but also for Iran. I mean, if the, the aim of the game was to, you know, create a Middle East more shaped by the United States, the consequences have been extraordinarily perverse and you know the the current moment of the moment you know in which china is brokering a rapprochement between a quadrilateral you know between china russia on the one hand and china uh, superintending an iranian saudi arabian rapprochement i mean this is the presumably the nightmare of american grand strategy and hard to imagine without without the vacuum created by this policy with the end result that America has to a considerable extent withdrawn from the region, um, which in the 70s and through the 80s and 90s was considered you know, pivotal to American interests. So I think it's a huge turning point in that respect. I mean, but what does that say about the United States as a historical actor that can sort of create history for others without even sort of creating any for itself. It sort of just like blundered into this region, changed it in all these ways you're describing, and then just sort of stops thinking about it 
and well, that on. was the, the observation, wasn't it, about the entire operation that the Americans mm. didn't appear. Many of the American players did not appear to appreciate the world historic mm. cultural significance of the territory that they were operating within. Right? I mean, A didn't really understand that Iraq was a relatively sophisticated society and therefore hugely underestimated the scale of the resistance they would encounter when they destroyed the Ba'athist state. But you know, setting that aside, also just didn't appreciate the the you know, the sense that Mesopotamia was a cradle of human civilization, and so yes, I mean, I'm afraid that that seems a fair judgment on this episode, and I and I think even the relative lack of commemoration at the highest political level um, itself is telling, right? That that even now there isn't really a sense of accountability. I mean, and it would require. A, fairly deep soul-searching also on the part of important media, right, who were part of the, to be honest, mm. I, don't, I don't remember, and we, maybe foreign policy has I, skeletons in its closet that I, I personally um, haven't mm. had the time to excavate, but notoriously the New York Times, you know, was was uh, at fault, I think, essentially, for mm. failing to provide a corrective to the, the drift to war in the United States. And it's clear... Very least in the team in the in the Biden administration right now, when they came to rallying United Nations support for the stance they have chosen to take over the Ukra the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that they were extremely conscious of the damage that was done to America's reputation in the UN by what turned out essentially to be completely misleading, you know, if not deliberately deceptive. Um, information and intelligence provided to the world community by the U.S. in ahead, ahead of the war. Well, we've strayed some from the strictly economic questions, but I do think this sort of goes to support your point that, in a way, the United States could manage to afford this war, you know, in all yeah. of these ways, and but precisely in the ways that we've moved on from it. It's a sign of how much we could afford it. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, we do need to stop here. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. 
I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. <laughs> <laughs>